This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist Nina Yuan. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Nina is an artist and filmmaker whose work deals with gender, narcissism, migration, psychology, philosophy, and so much more. In her visually stunning films, she transforms fragments of appropriated writings and imagery into cogent and introspective narratives in which she plays the starring role. Her protagonists are often vulnerable outsiders in the midst of experiencing and processing trauma. Let's start with just playing a video uh, clip. Obviously, we're on you know a podcast and we can't see all of the rich imagery that you're using, but I'm just going to start with this Narcissus Little, and it's an excerpt, and I'll just play it. My presence fragments and breaks apart things wherever I stand. So moving allows things to be put back together. That's nice for the things, but what about me? It's like my presence is puncturing a hole in the world. Like when you're standing in a cave or a field or a large open space and you say something and then magically it's as if the open space repeats your own words back to you. Will I do the same thing? My isolation from the world creates a sense of me being two things at once, absent and present. Imagine trying to fill a bowl full of holes with water. I'm to your right, I mean your left, and you can't find me. The only way to stop this feeling is to keep moving along so I can escape the feeling. Except that no matter where I go, the feeling hunts me down. Is this narration a character, or do you feel like it's you? Where does the that voice come from for you? In this particular, I think in a, in a single film, the voice will be lots of different things. So in this particular moment that you excerpted, the voice is a, an, an analytical voice that is actually almost acting like a cliff notes to the way that the film might be analyzed or understood. So it's a little like, I'm, I think you could read it as almost being like a wall text to the things that in other parts of the film, I might be playing a specific character that is actually myself, that is autobiographical. And other parts might be quotes of other characters that are all merging into a single one. And yeah, and so this one is very much like, these little like whispers um, to the 
to the viewer about the big themes <laughs> of the work right. and the like philosophical underpinning of the work in an almost um, a kind of like very straightforward and flagrant and ob obvious and clear way, even though it has been written it's said in this extremely confessional voice, right. and it's all written in the eye, but it's actually really um, uh, pretty theoretical. Can you explain what you mean by theoretical? Mm -hmm. I know that it's like a term that we use all the time, but what to you in that scene does, does yeah. it mean? Yeah, I guess like these words like theoretical, philosophical, um, are hinting towards larger themes of collective human experience that go beyond the individual narrative that are yes. these like, um, that could you can group like canons of like types of literature around them or cinema um, all being like thematic in this way. And so the text itself is taken from an uh, archive of people who are writing descriptions of what a series of poems are about for high school students who aren't getting poems. And so I was really interested in collecting ways that um, that are kind of like crib notes for the larger ideas about like poems about, this was a, like a poem about a man walking through the field. And this was a little like, a lot of the text is coming from cheat sheets about um, how to write about this in like your high school essay about the poem. And so it is saying ways of talking about like the fragmented self, about the elusiveness of aloneness and the doubleness of aloneness, <laughs> like these big, really big, uh, these kind of big ideas that a specific poem might be about. And then I transformed it back into the voice of the I or the, the confessional as if it's uh, was personally experienced by me. And that's a trick that I employ a lot in my work, which is taking something that is a very different kind of text and bringing it into a more journalist or confessional text, giving it the authenticity as if it were experienced firsthand. When I, when I wa was looking at all of your videos and when I watched that one video at our crit group here in New Haven, I was, um, there are moments where you sort of see these references that seem familiar, like as a viewer to, I, I'm always, I, I watch your stuff and it's so specific in terms of the visuals to you, but then there are these narratives that feel familiar or like that feel like they're out there in the ether that seem to make their way into the work. Is that something you're sort of trying to do or thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of quotations that are directly coming from really dominant pop popular culture like uh, Nike ads, Metallica songs, um, a lot of mainstream cinema and uh, bestsellers. There are things that are like that. And hopefully in quoting them in and changing them and putting them in my films, I can actually give them a different life with more possibilities in ways that they might be very like limited, mm. maybe to mm. a specific uh, gender role or a cliche or a type of person to offer them new possibilities just by being channeled through my body or to directly critique them by recontextualizing them in a different format. Um, and not to critique them directly by saying what's wrong with them, but to critique them by showing the way that they hold up differently in a different circumstance or in a different story. Can you describe a particular um, 
I actually for this video, I looked at some of your the because you very kindly provide references, which means that it's clearly very important to you that the viewer at least eventually see where they're coming from. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the thing that stood out to me was the Marina Abramovic made me cry Tumblr. I went to it and it was images of people crying because they looked at Marina or saw Marina Abramovic. It seemed humorous to me. Like I, yeah. I found it funny to see it. What about that? You have like poetry from like, you know, famous poets. The mother nature thing was also really interesting with the um, Julia Roberts reference. Are you are you trying to equalize? Are you trying to say that like a Robert Frost poem should be on the same level as, for instance, the writing that goes into Conservation International with this ad? where Julia Roberts is mother nature and outraged at environmental degradation at the hands of human of people. Is that an equalization thing for you or is it something they're unique and they just kind of find their way in? I don't know if that's a clear question or not. Yeah, no, that's a clear question. I think that there's a way that there's like like highbrow, middlebrow, lowbrow, like references from all of these different parts of the culture that might be um that might be in some ways the references themselves might not necessarily be flattened but they've all been put into the same like big cauldron or soup um, yeah. that then becomes an investigation of something that is very different from what their intended use was but they also can lend a kind of emotional eloquence or content eloquence that was not intended to discuss the subject at hand. And so a lot of times the films might seem very associative or freewheeling, but they, for me, often are an investigation of a central like question or yearning that is um, really not linear and very, um, it's actually very branching. And it's, mm -hmm. and like this kind of grabbing from these different sources um, in some ways I'm borrowing or stealing things that they have inside them that are not coming to life in their existing works. Um, but in some ways, it might also be there's a um, a tricky ethical question around it because it might not always be within the artist's consent or hope or intention for their work. And so I feel like um, with Mar the Marina Bramovich thing, for example, she is a... Um, well-known artists with copyrighted images that are mm -hmm. um, also the images of other people who mm -hmm. have come in and signed a release form, but then in this very vulnerable moment started to cry. And then there's this funny blog that is very much about this like incredible moment of like weird vul vulnerability of meeting an art star for some, right. or it also might it be like- It was like going to a Michael Jackson concert <laughs> or something. Those yeah. images of people, you know, breaking down and right or also this moment of like beautiful transcendence that yeah. art can actually cause us to feel that yeah. we're like ashamed to admit that we've cried in front of an artwork or in the presence of a performance in the past yes. like it's just so raw <laughs> yeah that, that seems to be uh this conflict maybe in like a good conflict that's in your work which seems to be a um a conflict between earnestness and 
criticalness of that earnest or wanting to investigate that earnest feeling or the the complexity of it or I don't know is that yeah I think that I'm I think that there's a um there's a really common misconception that's like sincerity isn't smart yeah and that um like that it's okay it's not okay if a work is naive but it is okay if it's faux naive so you right. can be using right. these kinds of images. The irony right. thing. <laughs> right. But yeah. you can also be using um, images that are not uh, in good taste or well-trained or um, as long as you know what it is you're doing. And it puts a lot of burden on, the, on an artist to always have to imagine what a very like harsh critic or a more knowledgeable person might be able to see when they see their work um, yes. from the outside. And I do think that there's a way that um, that this kind of attitude of um, the artist needing to be so self-aware and have a work that critiques itself or knows how it might seem puts a lot of burden on the artist to both be very interior and develop a huge interior life and imagination and bubble in which they live, but also be outside of that bubble <laughs> and know, right. know way the, the way that it's like playing into all of these other conversations. And I think that there's this, um, there's this distrust of the work a lot of times that people get over when it is contextualized in like institutional establishments or a strong art career that makes it like legit or very strong or very like elite education that makes it seem like this is uh this is not someone who is quoting this because they haven't thought beyond it and they're not just mm -hmm. living in daytime television <laughs> right <laughs> they right. like read a book about what's wrong with daytime television right but they're sort of they're like writing a book but they also love it but it's okay because they understand why it's bad and yeah, or something <laughs> or, like that. Or, or I think that yeah. there's also this way that viewers are, and I'm sure this is true, like this moment where you cry in front of Marima, Marina Abramovich and you might, other people might laugh at you for doing that and being on this blog and people giving themselves critical permission to participate in something that is like, deeply sincere or emotional or right. raw through art <laughs> right and when is the moment where you're not like a total like chump for doing it even in this um narcissus excerpt that we just played you sound like a child speaking before they understand uh social norms almost like you're you're just talking about like things that pop into your head with no thought about the implications of what you're saying is that something yeah. that you're thinking about yeah i mean it is a little bit like teenagers staring up at the stars yeah. <laughs> being like whoa and the and the content of the of what it is that i'm saying is also deeply confessional i would say that a big part of um making each work is actually starting to fall into it and believe it and and I entered into making this film Narcissus with a real desire to meet myself as an other yeah. and that's very much what it's like to record your voice and then hear it back a thousand times as you're editing and a lot of times the form of like the process of making the film will be really related to what it is that I'm trying and failing to achieve in the film. And so in this whole movie, it, it's that thing that I'm talking about is um, very much about like being born to yourself and what that means, the way that we're constantly 
uh, creating our own identity and hearing our own voices as we're speaking. And so I think that my work as a performer and the way that I am saying things with my original voice and the emotional tone and the kind of character that I am presenting is a big part of, I think, the like aesthetic aspect of the work and um, the like affect and the um, perceived innocence, I think, is also, it's really, really important to it. A while back, you said something about, you know, you start with kind of a concern or a problem that branches out into these different things and you sort of follow that train. Is that seed of an idea? Does it tend to be a visual idea or is it something that exists more in a written world or like a sound world? Where, where does it come from for you? And I'm sure it might come from different places. I don't know. But where does that where does it come from? I think it often comes from a very personal artist therapy kind of place where I will be confronting an actual trauma or fear or reality, like my fear of the people that I know dying or the people that I love dying. And then I'll be, uh, I'll explore these kinds of the parts of my psychology that are uh, sticky and murky and scary a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And that will be the um, like the driving impetus for an investigation. And a lot of times a film will, all the time, the film will never answer, complete, or fulfill it. And so a lot of the movies go back to the same things, but at different stages in my life and different levels of maturity. Do these sources that you're pulling from, are they therapeutic for you to sort of see other people or other sources that are speaking to you when you're in that state of mind, whatever it may be. I would say that uh, I would think of it as a therapy that doesn't work. It's yeah. not. It's not successful in any way. It's about its own futility, and the reason why these non-logical, somewhat unfinished seeming, very knotted spaces full of like gaps and gray area are the best ways to deal with them is that they're not um, they're not issues that human beings will ever like solve in any right. way. We'll just continue to like try to explore them in new and old ways and combinations of new and old ways. And a lot of times I think the sources end up being things that in intersect my life almost by chance. And then I will twist them to be about the thing that I I'm poking at at the moment, but they're not um, they're not actually literature on the subject of death or whatever the film um, is about or literature on the subject of mm -hmm. the narcissist or whatever the subject of the film is. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk with you also about nature. It seems so important to you in the in the visuals. You seem like a cinematographer. I mean, you have one video that's literally going down the road of the the nature documentary, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Leah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, all, throughout all of the work that you do, there's this beautiful, natural, visceral, almost sensual quality to nature. Like when I was a kid, I went to IMAX movies and stuff. I just think of that when I watch your stuff, even when... It's your body in the shot. You sort of have this relationship to nature in some way. But where does that where does that come from for you? Yeah, well, it's funny because people when people talk about a studio practice, they 
are often talking about being inside the structure of a studio. But I think of um, a lot of the my films are shot in places that are like in rivers I used to play in as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a return to this moment where you like catch someone doing something all alone as if nobody's watching and they're playing. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it feels very private and you want to keep watching them and they don't know that they're being watched. I think a yeah. lot of times the camera and the way that the shots are framed with me in these kind of um, these landscapes or even these uh, close-ups of nature really do have to do the, with this idea of um, very much a studio practice, but just not an indoor studio practice. And um, what it means to be in these specific locations. And like there's one scene in that film, for example, where I... Uh, have a stone that is my baby and I will yeah. like walk the entire river looking for the right stone to play the part of my baby which is the art in the, the artist in the art supply store like looking right. for their supplies it's actually it's a very green way of making art <laughs> you know <laughs> you know you're from Hawaii I mean it's so far away from Connecticut and I was wondering when I was looking at your shots there was more of a kind of like a tropical or it didn't wasn't obviously you know like hawaii the way it's pictured on a postcard but some of the leaves and some of the stuff just seemed like it was from from that area um that seems like a unique experience to have to grow up on an island do you think it has impacted your work or influenced your work in any profound ways or oh, not yeah. profound ways or whatever yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a way that I can perform in the works that I am showing a kind of relationship, a kind of fearless relationship to the like dangerous aspects of nature and daring it to teach me things um, mm. and being kind of being tough in it in the way that like a country girl who grew up next to the ocean can be. So mm -hmm. I re-performed a Vito Akanchi piece where he would lie between the sand and the ocean and let the waves push him as far as they would. And I it, saw the piece, that. Yeah. I watched that. Yeah. yeah. And it was originally much more of a tame version of the piece. And because I grew up in like a lot of surf in Hawaii, I was not afraid of lying on the rocks and letting the waves just totally slam me. But there's also a way that... Um, a lot of these films, if they're shot in public beaches or rivers, there's also like a crowd of people that will gather around because all of the films are shot just on a tripod on me. So an audience will form around and there's a way that like, um, oh, yeah. So hang on. Yeah. So you're going out by yourself with a camera. It's you alone. Mm -hmm. You set up the shot. I was wondering that. I wanted to ask you that. So you don't actually have a production team, really. Right. It's you. Mm -hmm. That must add to the like intimacy of the way that you perform in front of that camera, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that there's also like a shameless um, selfishness that you can engage in when you involve yourself in a solo practice where there's nobody waiting for the shot to be done or taken um, and you don't have a team. And so you can continue to experiment almost indefinitely with shooting, you know, especially with digital media. It can just go on and on and then be erased and <laughs> recorded again. Right. And so I think that it takes the kind of uh, social pressure uh, off of work. And then it also allows this idea that... Um, 
that there's this uh the way that you might be able to believe in the fiction of your own film uh as a kind of method acting or as an actual ability to get into a trance state that your film might be about it allows me to do that because um there is the self-consciousness of the camera recording but it's also delayed in time so someone may or may not see it in the future um, and in the moment, I think that I sometimes am really able to fall into a performance because it is only me and this imagined eye of the camera that's there. I did like theater when I was in high school. So I have this sense of, you know, like an audience feeding me in some way when I perform. And you, you actually describe actually people standing around you. So you have to have, you do kind of gain some like energy from the audience, I suppose. I'm not exactly sure where I was going with this, but I was thinking of, uh, I guess I was thinking of it, it's an interesting, it's like an introvert who likes to perform by themselves and like record it. There's something about that that's really interesting to me, wanting to be alone, seeking out these places that are away from other people, but also wanting to share a moment that maybe you couldn't share with an audience. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of what is like interiority, <laughs> like yeah. having uh, like a, a really, what does it mean to have a rich interior life? And I also think that there's this ongoing question, which is how much of the work is fiction and how much of it is nonfiction or this ongoing question of how real is it? And yeah. I think that there's a way that even though these th I might be performing a story that is someone else's story or a story that I thought of, I literally am re-performing it and I am saying those things over and over again in the forest as a kind of mantra that actually count. My artist practice actually starts to count as my lived life, even though it is recorded with the purpose of making a film or something like that. And I do think that there are some um, actors and writers who in, as some part of their understanding of themselves, they are. Tom Cruise, but they're also their character from Eyes Wide Shut. Right. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a weird, in a, yeah. in a weird yeah. kind of way. Um, and not in a way that is like you've lost grasp with reality. But I think that if I'm asking people to fall into the world of my films for a little while, there's a way that I need to fall much deeper into them when I'm involved mm -hmm. in a studio practice. And I think a big part of that can be... Um, what it actually means to be very much alone with my image making and alone with myself and being both like the gaze of the director and the performer of being the actress in the, in the work. Have people ever kind of, I mean, I'm sure they are like, what are you doing? When, like you're in the woods alone and you've got a camera and you're like, perform have people ever kind of come up to you and said like, what's going on? Oh, there's so, many, there's so many sad stories of parents being really concerned for their children. And I embarrassed <laughs> my parents in front of the neighbors so much because I'll, they'll be walking past and I'll be crawling out from under a car or I'll have like <laughs> branches in my arms and I'll be running That's into great. their house and falling over. And, they'll, you know, there are lots of little like sightings of me doing a variety of things that has just like made my parents absolutely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> to have heard as reported by, you know. So. That's so funny. <laughs> we talked about the narration, which is sound, right? But also sound effects seem to be really important to you. 
how does that process work? How do you source the sound? Are you making the sound effect? I mean, I know for some stuff you're sourcing it, but it's very rich with sound. And I noticed that you alternate speaker, you know, you alternate from left to right sometimes and it creates a more, I, I think it immerses the viewer. I, I mean, I think that in terms of being emotionally evocative, sound without language brings us into a, there's often a, a moment of a traditional narrative arc in the films and a moment of breaking through or transcendence that will be, you'll know you're there in the same way that you you know when you're watching a multiplex movie when the music comes in and you might be already feeling it, but you definitely are now that the like, it's just like trying to, it's just so powerful and so manipulative. And a lot of times mm. um, I will use sounds that are when they're like movie soundtracks are famous um, pieces of classical music. They'll often be like looping scales and that create this repeated climax uh, that is extremely simple, um, but might speak to the kind of pattern making that is happening in the images and in the work itself. And um, and then in other spaces, sound is the greatest illusion for creating the idea of the reality of a world. So uh, an image of a river is not a river until you hear it's bubbling and then you're there. And um, right. And so it can be a way of either when it's gone of making something that is hugely internal and really in the world of thought. And then it can be a way of the, a lot of the works are extremely claustrophobic. And in a moment where you start to hear a cicada or some wind, it allows a little bit of air into the work. I think it would be good to play a little bit of Raymond yeah. and talk about that one. Names? This is not good because I'm really trying to prioritize people's names. Like I shouldn't think of certain people before other people. <laughs> oh, my mother, my father, my Auntie Ruby, Alan Hankin, James Soriano, Steve Yamashiro, Daniel Kayanoi, Mrs. Kalkali, Eddie Kalkali, Sonny Kalkali, Harvey Chong, Gabriel Figuera, Woody Ramos, Mr. Kobayashi, Toshi Norimatsu, Mrs. Norimatsu, Mitz Tanaka, Valerie Louis-Kwan, Joe Estrella Sr., Mrs. Estrella, Orrin Gill, Myra Kalii Pio, Warner Borges, Jan Mayer, Jeff Crane, James Carvalho, Jordan. So, I mean, what to you, what to you is that about? Yeah, that is, um, while each of those names are playing, there's a image of a like fallen branch or flower or seed fragment on the road um, outside of the house where I grew up. And there's a way in which in this film, I'm trying to understand mortality in its uh, necropoetic uh, exploration of what age is. And this realization that as my parents grow older, also they're their own experiences with death are become more and more vast. So they'll go through photo albums and say that mm -hmm. that person has passed and that person has passed. Um, and to try to understand what it is to, um, to, to watch my father age while he simultaneously watches me grow and watches all of these other people age and die. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I think that, and I think that it is in a way a, um, 
it's a conceptual gesture to have him undergo that experiment, which is an, a real, like these are actual people and people's names. Um, but also it is a, um, a kind of interpersonal gesture that I'm asking my father to speak in a maybe nonspecific way about his own mortality. Uh, that is a kind of um, a thing that, is, that also affects my life uh, mm -hmm. outside of the film by having him do that. How does it affect your life outside of the film? I think that there's a way that we can't um, prepare for the trauma of the deaths of the people that we love, and yet it is such a taboo subject by, that by overtly trying not to prepare at all <laughs> right. or recognize its reality, it is also... Um, we're living in this like strange that what which must never be spoken. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, this is this provides this huge evidence of mortality um, in these people, but also in this way that is all of, around us, like all of these things on the on the street um, are things that have fallen off of the branches and and also died. Right. We didn't play this, but one of the most haunting for me moments was when it's your father right mm -hmm. um i mean it actually is your father speaking mm -hmm. um it was when your father was talking about i think it was the haley's comet and you were a little girl and about how when it comes around again you'll be like an old lady and he'll be dead and there was something so haunting about that for some reason it sort of brings the viewer slash listener, I, I, you sort of time travel in a way. And it also allows you as a little girl to kind of time travel in a funny way or to like think about, I don't exactly know what I'm trying to say, but it was haunting. Yeah, well, I think that the work is very much about scale and about units of time and about um, time's arrow and time cycle. Mm -hmm. And this idea that there's this kind of cyclical uh way of thinking about time as being motions of planets and stars that is so much larger than we are. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also think of human life as being cyclical through like birth and generations and my father and me. And there's a lot of um, like ridiculous acts of conflation that happen in the work where very small units are placed up against very large things. Um, so like this little moment of a father confessing his own mortality to his daughter with like the cycles of comets. I think that there's a way that those two like things which are very different in scale are being put next to each other. Uh, and in this work, uh, the death of, you know, actual like beloved people and the death of famous people and the death of politicians and the um, to me, there are some of these like uh, in Hawaii, there are some species that are like on this road that are becoming extinct that mm -hmm. I'm photographing, which is like a much larger thing. But then there's yeah. this other smaller thing of like a dead leaf. <laughs> so there's this way that um, that I am very much playing with uh, these kind of putting these these very emotional subjects uh, up next to incremental or mathematical phenomena which are like scale and this yeah. idea of like powers of 10 or powers of different things and uh and mixing them in in some some ways like m they're the more messy they are the more evocative they can be yeah 
Yeah, seeing those actually beautiful close-ups of fallen, dying plant life next to the names of of people, uh, you know, it was humorous, right? They start, they also seem to be personifying or representing people, you know. Um, It also had this feel for me of Memorial Day going to listen to the, you know, hear all the people that died in wars, which is this very solemn, serious event and kind of the way that he was reading off those names and then seeing sort of insignificant things that we don't think about as tragedies flashing before us. But at the same time, you take such beautiful shots of them that they do start to take on more importance in the video. You also talked about, you know, the, them in the written area as a metaphor for immigrating to Hawaii. The, the, you know, you said the plants were all, you know, non-native species. What about that is important to you as an artist? Yeah, I think that this question of where I'm from uh, is being, in a way, it's so profoundly tied into an artist's work in ways that just even when you're not setting out to make an identity politics work, it can't mm-hmm. be escaped because it is the they are the raw materials that you're dealing with. And the, right. the last names of these people that my father has listed that have died, you hear the entire immigration history of Hawaii sugarcane plantations as yeah. they are in the ethnicities of these last names. And these are this is our world and these are the people that we know. And then the trees that um, the leaves and branches and fragments that are on the ground are all um, a lot of them are alien species that migrated to Hawaii in this jet stream, which is this like very high power wind thing yeah. that goes, goes up That's over the so island. That's so nuts when like I read this, that. Yeah. So there's a there's a doubleness of these these two things that happen to be uh, very specific to uh, to histories of migration um that end up being this this kind of material of life and death that are true of any specific space that you're making a work from. What's the ideal place for a viewer to view your work? If you had the perfect kind of setting for the work, would it be a movie theater? Would it be a gallery? That's a good question. I think that um, in some ways, when a work is seen in like a very respected institution or um, biennial or event, it is given a kind of aura around it that can really suit a certain type of work um, where I think that I'm trying to say that this the main character of my story is worth paying attention to and listening to and and having something that is told in a, maybe a space that is more elevated than they normally would be allowed to expand into. And so some part of me feels like it's really read differently when it's in like a garage gallery or an outsider space, uh, an outsider art space, because the character is already marginalized. to be So mm-hmm. to be shown in an, in an also kind of like a somewhat marginalized space doesn't always seem like an act of elevation for it. <laughs> but it's hard right. also for me to, um, like, I think that a lot of the works are very much about um, an artist's ambition, 
about the thirst of wanting institutional accolade as the subject mm -hmm. of a lot of the work. Um, and so it also gains a, a strange other level when it's also in, when it seems like I am an established artist to make a work right. <laughs> like that, which can be, that can be tricky with the, with the work. I, I think when I showed you guys the work at Crit Group, there's a way when you show work to people who know you, it has this whole other life. Right, totally. <laughs> to it. Or people who you have yeah. to see again, it has a, a very different life to it. I think that, um, I think that's a really good question. If the work really has an ideal space, I think it just operates extremely different. It, it depends on which work, and I think that each work is operating in a very different way um, depending on the context. I think that I have an ambition on the part of some of the works themselves to exist alongside respected and serious artworks um, mm -hmm. in somewhat for, you know, in, in some ways for like these really like obvious, like kind of selfish reasons mm -hmm. of like that are linked to my ego. Um, and then in some ways for on behalf of these imaginary characters <laughs> that are in the work that um, that I'm working as a kind of like advocate on their behalf as the artist mm -hmm. who created them, that I would like them to be in places where they um, are looked on with, uh, with a kind of um, serious consideration. Yeah. You know, you mentioned them as marginalized um, and you all, you've spoken a great deal about them as coming from a vulnerable place and exploring vulnerability. Can you speak a little bit more about their about their marginalization or where that comes from for you? Yeah, I think that in the film Narcissus, there is uh, an unresolved nature of um, self-hatred, self-love, self-aggrandizement, de debasement, um, objectif objectification, all sure. of these uh, different ways that we like are um, that a very female character is mm -hmm. dealing with uh, her own body. And these are ways that we are seeing women described and uh, images of women all the time in these very like specific ways on, you know, in all kinds of different media platforms. And then to um, I think that there is this magic that of why we have art institutions is what happens when you're actually withdrawing, like pulling things outside of other contexts and putting them into a um, this other space in which maybe you c new possibilities are formed in the way that you're looking at them. Um, and I think that there's some ways that uh, in the wrong context, an artwork or when it's done poorly, an artwork can just serve to reinforce all of the problems that it's setting out to critique. <laughs> and yeah. if they're really well curated and if they're um, really carefully created, there's a way that uh, something can be truly countercultural. Yeah, there's a way in which you use your body a lot and, you know, you're always in it. It's always you. And it seems like sometimes you flirt with almost objectifying yourself but you always you always uh make the vulnerability so present and the sort of internal life of the character you know through voiceover and through the way that you look so present that it 
seems to fight that tendency that's in other works of art. I don't know if that's... Right. And sometimes, depending on who's watching it and how they're watching it and how I've done it, sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it yeah. doesn't. And the process is very, uh, is very messy. Making more and more work and looking at more work and thinking about past works has been a way of noticing points at which my work is problematic, the ways in which it is, um, it's working against things that I intend to do. And, and also this level of acceptance of the breaking of eggs that go into making the omelet and the way that um, mistakes will be made in terms of the, like, the political intention of mm -hmm. the work and the way mm -hmm. that it actually registers in the culture. Can you give a, a you don't have to yeah. give an example, oh, yeah. but I'd love to hear an example of, you know, a situation where you looked back and you were like, I was trying to do this, but this is what happened and yeah. I want to change this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there, like, there are times when I've quoted a sacred text that I felt afterwards that it was, um, I think that that is a boundary that I don't want to transgress without uh, respect and knowledge into moving into other spaces. And then there have been times when people have directly told me that um, a quotation that I've used or a work that I've used has hurt them. And if mm -hmm. they're telling me that it hurt them, I can't tell them that it didn't. And so yeah. there's this aspect that artists can feel where they're like, oh, steal like an artist and you can use anything you want to and everything can be your inspiration. But at the same time, uh, people care about where their own stories do end up and their own words end yeah. up. And they have a kind of intention and in making and um, this idea of being a kind of bull in the china shop of culture. It can be very tricky and it's inevitable that you're going to, uh, that there'll be some aspects of cruelty or missteps if you ever make anything. But at the same time, I think that there's a way that when I want to critique something, uh, to do that with this real intentionality of critique <laughs> and what it means to uh, be aiming at systems that are much more powerful than me, than, um, than individuals that can be hurt by a work. That's a really good point. Just back to the Marina Abramovic crying thing. A lot of the work that you seem to take from is written work, but this is very much a visual thing. What is it that you took from that source yeah. of people's faces crying and how did you import it into Narcissus? Yeah, so I filmed it off of my computer screen and I dripped water down the front of the computer screen and filmed the screen. And so it is, you can actually see where their eyes were. I see. Um, that there's an actual tear falling. So their faces seem, people think that their faces are moving, but they're actually, they're still images. Um, and it's just these slow tears. So I turned what were prob probably like some ugly cries into this idea of the beautiful or the poetic cry, which is the still face with the single slow moving tear. Um, and I also took the, like a digital image and I made it, um, alive in real time and I actually made my computer screen cry and Whoa. yeah <laughs> which awesome. is like yeah which is this other um other way of uh interpreting this but I'm also taking a um a copyrighted image and 
thinking, at least in my mind, that I'm changing it enough to make it my own or that I'm making, I'm using it as a raw material for in an intervention um, that, yeah, that speaks to this really well-known art exhibition of the artist is present. Yeah. Yeah. Were you doing projects like this as a child? Because there is such a, there is the child or the child seems to be important in your work. You know, you talk about images of, of women in the media. And I think also one of the things that you're doing maybe to counteract maybe the male gaze or um, the way that, you know, women are portrayed is that you're also very childlike in a sort of this inquisitive way that we were talking about and vulnerable way. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, what what were you like as a child and were you doing creative projects? Like when did it when did you decide, you know, you wanted to make art? Yeah, I think that um there's a way that uh play acting and attributing sentience to non-sentient things is a really like childlike right. thing to do and this idea that you know, if you see a kid in their room, they actually do believe in the experience. They can believe in a kind of plurality of experiences because they think that all of their action figures or dolls can see their room from all of these different perspectives. And there's a kind of um, there's a kind of together aloneness that they can really experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then uh, there's the moment where a lot of that drops away and the kid is very much alone. And then that can re-enter as a set of sentience or a set of eyes when you are making a film from a lot of different angles. Yeah. So you all of a sudden have like, you know, there are these eyes that are back in in your room or in your space. And, um, and I think that there's a way that... Uh, there is a kind of um, disdain for innocence, vulnerability, especially grown people acting like children, uh, that to become a like real world grown up is to uh, accept that certain things are not real. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. artists have this incredible like caveat of being able to um, push that aside for a bit and be like a live action role player, but all by themselves, <laughs> yeah. you know, their own created thing. And there is this like deep sense of shame that people from the outside might feel in witnessing it because it's everything that by being acculturated, you're trained to no longer do. And I think that um, a lot of what an art education is, is just like, one of your teachers among many is saying like in this room you can do that right, right, right. <laughs> or whatever it is like that <laughs> kind funny. of shame yeah. of acculturation that is occurring in all the other spaces that there is a little exception to that and there is this little world in which you can um, can operate in this way that is maybe not necessarily going to be celebrated but is very safe um, mm -hmm. yeah when you use the term acculturated, are you, you know, a lot of people think about art as, as culture. And in a way you're talking about art as an escape from culture. Art is like a really sick rule, like, yeah. rule, like a really nice escape, escape from a really sick system of rules that is our culture and an opportunity to try on new sets of rules. And mm -hmm. even though you haven't created a revolution or a utopia you have created a small space in which mm -hmm. you are able to 
lay out some things that might be uh, countercultural or speak to things that you find are like really messed up on TV or um, just in all of the images and things that we're hearing that are made by um, by, you know, like not even people, but um, like motion picture houses yeah. <laughs> with their own agendas. Right. And how you can be like a tiny little voice speaking back to them using their own words. And that actually is making me think of another work of yours where you're interviewing yourself mm -hmm. yeah. and you're like, you're the director on the ca casting couch asking yourself, yeah, the actress, kind of do things that she might feel uncomfortable with. And clearly there's a power dynamic going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that work is called Switch. Switch. Yeah. Got it. That seems to be almost a more explicit way of talking about that than your other work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it speaks to like casting couch porn in a lot yeah. of ways, but mm -hmm. also to science fiction. And this idea of um, what I'm asking, I play the director and the actress, and I'm asking the actress to take on the symptoms of all of, a bunch of diseases from science fiction history that would be really impossible um, to do like have a like diamond sprout from your skin right. like there are a variety of things and she's like oh okay like I'll try <laughs> yeah know? well it and it's it's both um it's both hilarious and disturbing at the same time you keep jumping back because it's because as you were just saying about you know taking something from a, an artist right if they're unhappy about it then it's not a good thing, right? And you wanna, you don't wanna make people unhappy. So here we're watching this actress being asked to do absurd things that are sort of hilarious, but her face is saying everything about how uncomfortable of a situation it is. Yeah, and I think in some ways it is about the duality of being both the director and performer in your own work and also in your own life um, and the way that, um, yeah, that we're constantly being pushed up against impossibilities and the, um, yeah, the intense power dynamic that is existing that is sometimes like totally invisible to us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the intervention in the script where it is this like almost like a collective memory of bodily horror uh, yeah. to place that in, in the space of... Uh, of sexual gestures as a way of describing what uh, sexual trauma might be like for someone who doesn't yeah. understand, uh, who might be in a more powerful position. Thank you so much for coming on to the first stop. It was it was a really really interesting conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. I love your questions. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible.